KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Hello, and welcome to the PEP voicemail hotline. To reach co-creator Kirk Conan press 1, to reach head editor Chris Reyes press 2, to comment on a past episode or topic press 3, to start the newest episode press 4. You're listening to the Parker Edison Project. Edison Project. Good morning, and welcome to season 2 of the Parker Edison Project. This time around, we're showing you how culture really manifests in our day-to-day life. This particular episode deals with the problem we're all dealing with. Bad bots, scammers, and robocalls. We all get the calls, but how they got to be so common is an eerie evolution that happened right under our noses. We started off with phones and telemarketers. Siri, what's telemarketing? Telemarketing is a method of direct marketing in which a salesperson or telemarketer solicits prospective customers to buy products or services over the phone. These days, cell phones have become a key part of American life. So much so, landlines and payphones have gone almost extinct. Facebook has become this generation's yellow pages, which means classic telephone call centers had to find a way to fit into social media. You ever heard of a troll? In politics, a troll is a fake online identity created to promote a specific set of opinions. See, with the popularity of the internet, unscrupulous politicians have figured out that they can use trolls to persuade inexperienced voters. The way it works is a troll is paid to create 10 to 15 fake Twitter accounts and use them to tweet so frequently their messages are perceived by novice voters as popular opinion. When the same process is executed mechanically, it's sometimes referred to as a bot farm. Essentially, serving the same purpose as call centers, but in addition to swindling your money, they also manufacture fake news. Make no mistake, though. Those are the bad guys. Folks like my next guest are constantly utilizing ethical practices and finding creative ways to introduce them into the mainstream. What's your name and what city are you in? Uh, my name is Madeline Toomey and I live in Washington, D.C. Okay. Okay. What do you do for a living? I pretty much work at the intersection of digital media and politics. I run a consulting practice called Rufus and Maine here in D.C. And I also am helping start a nonprofit called Gen Z for Change. They're a coalition of TikTok creators that use their platforms for good. I'm really a marketer. I work in marketing. I just happen to do that primarily in progressive politics and for causes that I believe in. I was looking at a little bit of your resume and I had to ask, Can you tell me anything about the Joe Biden video game? So in 2020, I joined the Biden campaign and I ended up joining a team called the Digital Partnerships Team. We had a unique goal, which was how do we get more Joe Biden content onto other people's channels? So like anywhere on the internet that wasn't our social media or our email list or our ads, right? Like kind of into the ether. I convinced some people to do a lot of gaming work. I was really fascinated with the idea of getting into that community. It's such a big part of internet culture. And we had created an island on Animal Crossing. And then colleague and I somehow convinced people to let us build a Fortnite map. So that was really fun. (laughs) That's dope. That really is. Thank Um, you. The focus of this episode has a lot to do with the connection that we have to our phones. And I was kind of curious if you could give me your impression of the part that phones might play in the next election. 
Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, we're, we're really holding computers in our hands. They have, honestly, in a lot of cases, the same kind of processing power as a lot of our laptops do, the same amount of memory, things like that. And when I started in this field, you know, over 10 years ago, iPhones were still relatively new. The idea that people weren't signing petitions on their phones, they weren't purchasing things, they weren't making donations. And of course, now that's not the case at all. You know, people are on their phones constantly. I read a study that said that people are spending on average four to five hours of, on their phone every day. I don't know about you. I know what my phone tells me. It's a little higher than that, for better or for worse. <laughs> From what I do for causes and for campaigns, I can reach you through text messaging. I can call you. I can run ads on your phone. I can reach you on social media on your phone. I can send you emails on your phone. All those things are, are a way for me to try to reach people via phone. It's kind of crazy. In the music world, we have bot farms that are coming up. And they're being paid to to raise the notoriety of certain musicians. I want you to know if this could possibly be a similar tool or tactic that's being used in the political realm. What that makes me think of a lot is how like TikTok is being used both by the music industry and then also for good. So that's pretty interesting, right? The idea that like these trends are manufactured on TikTok. The music industry was like really early in understanding the power of TikTok. I think we're seeing it a lot in how music's crafted now too, right? What is that 10 second clip that can be utilized on TikTok? And I think if you look at the artists that have kind of been owning TikTok for the last couple of years, they're the ones that are owning the music industry, right? Like Doja Cat, Megan Thee Stallion, Lil Nas X. So in politics, the thing that I'm most interested in this year is SMS, the use of text messages in politics. This isn't new, but I do think I've been seeing more and more SMS messages from candidates and specifically like lower ballot candidates this cycle. And we have seen that text messages are great ways to develop relationships with voters or with constituents. It's very personal. It's very one-to-one -one, and it can raise millions of dollars. The thing that I worry about is like any tactic, the more you do it, the less meaningful it is, right? I think they're going to just start kind of bombarding us, unfortunately. And I think people are going to start to get annoyed by it which is frustrating. We've seen troll farms and memes and YouTube ads used to distort public opinions. What can voters do to discern fake news or, or kind of deflect its influence? I think misinformation, disinformation feels like a really big problem, and it is. But there are also things that we can all do that really do make a difference. So the biggest one is like not sharing information that's incorrect. And there's a couple of ways that people might do this. The first is, you know, if you see something on Twitter or something and it speaks to you, you might just retweet it. And maybe you don't realize that it's incorrect. So when I see something that maybe feels a little bit inflammatory or just feels like, wait, really? Or wow, that's kind of crazy. You know, making sure that you're doing your due diligence and searching real news organizations and seeing if that's legit before retweeting it is really important. The other thing that people do accidentally is um, let's say you see a piece of information and you know it's wrong, like uh, information on vaccines that's just factually incorrect. And people perhaps might retweet that or quote tweet that, right? And say, you know, this actually isn't right. Um, but that's also really harmful too, because if you're retweeting that information, the algorithm doesn't know that you're disagreeing with it. The algorithm just knows you're sharing it. And so by doing that, you're actually like feeding the algorithm and ensuring that that bad content, that wrong content continues to be seen by other people. Mm -hmm. So if you see a piece of information like that, that's wrong or incorrect, you know, the thing that you could do is you can screenshot it. You can kind of put a lot of, you see news organizations do this. They put big X's on the top of it to kind of say like, we're showing you this, but it's not correct and it's wrong. And the other thing to think about is that they call it like the truth sandwich. 
So the first thing you do is say, okay, this is actually what the truth is. And then you acknowledge like the falsehood. This is why this thing is wrong. And then you kind of close out again and saying, and again, you know, this is the correct piece of information and here's how I know it's correct. You know, I verified it or it's coming from leading scientists or whatever it may be. When we try to push back on information that's wrong. Sometimes all we do is we just come across like kind of intensely and we people go back into what they believe, right? They say, oh, I'm being attacked and I don't like this attack and I'm just going to believe what I want to believe. So I think the most important thing that we can do is obviously always be really empathetic and understand where people are coming from, making sure that we're actually engaging in real conversation, like you said, and not just kind of saying, you know, you're wrong, I'm right. What is one of the most important topics that's on your desk right now? So I work with a lot of young students. I also actually teach a course at a university too. So I feel like I spend all of my time with Gen Z, which is very funny because I did not anticipate doing that in my life. Um, <laughs> I think working really closely with young people has been really energizing. They're so optimistic. They care so much about our country and they want to make it a better place. They're also really welcoming right, of other people, people who are different than themselves or one another. So one of the things I'm really excited about this year is helping younger people just turn out to vote in this election. Yeah. Where can people learn more about your work? You can follow me on Twitter. My name is Mad, M-A-D, the number two, and then M-E, Mad to me. Kind of like my name, but with a number thrown in. So impressed by Madeline's point of view. We're lucky to have minds like hers in such powerful places. The youth are the future. So few things are as important as empowering them. Hope you were jotting down notes on the tips Madeline just provided. If so, Keep your pencils out. After the break, I'll be back with another guest. But this one has tips on how you can combat phone scammers and robocallers. Stick around. Stay tuned for more of the PEP. PEP. You are listening to DJ Rube. Yeah, it's me on Not So Serious Radio on KKSM AM 1320 in Oceanside, streaming worldwide. And here, right here in San Diego at PalomarCollegeRadio.com. And you can also find us on the TuneIn and Live 365 apps under KKSM. The Parker Edison Podcast is proudly sponsored by Black women-owned Luna Glows, offering their signature facial to renew your spirit and pamper your skin with all organic skincare. Book your self-care session today at lunaglows.com. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. And now back to the PEP. Ayo, Parker, are you always doing stuff for the teachers and O-heads? Why you don't ever do something for the kids? For the f***ing kids. Hello, hello. I am your host, King Dice, social commentator, musician, and connoisseur of fine cheeseburgers. Uh, today, we're doing something a little bit different. Instead of movies, millennials should movie. We're going to do movies, boomers should movie. So we're going to kind of flip this episode on its head, and it's going to be movies that we think our older generation, our senior community should check out. Today, I have a guest, Mauricio. Mauricio, please introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Mauricio, and I am 17. I'm currently a student at a high school, and one of my favorite hobbies that I love to do is talk about films, and I'm a movie nice. geek person. 
Hey, and, um, let's go. I know a lot about uh, movies in general, mostly like behind the scenes of before a movie was made or movies that got shelved or movies that was going to happen, but at the last minute got canceled. Marisa, you sound like me. That's exactly who I was when I was in high school. Not, not to toot my own horn, but uh, when I got out of high school, I did a little acting. I was an extra in Alvin and the Chipmunks 2. So, uh, really? yeah, check, yeah I, I, did, I did a few movies, but uh, that was a, a phase I was going through. <laughs> right. Um, um, I have a question. Did those films, um, were they like straight to video or? No, that was, uh, that was a theater, man. I'm, I was doing it big. <laughs> you were doing it big? Yeah, that was a, that, that movie went straight to theater, so. No, I mean, um, other films. Or did you only do Chickmunks? Are you going to Mr. Woman? Huh? No. Um, well, yeah, let's get into our movies for today. The movie that I have for you is 2021's movie Encanto. Many years ago, this candle blessed our family with a miracle. Our house, our casita, came to life with magic. Hola, casita. It's the movie that features that song your grandkids or your children are playing nonstop. This is why we don't talk about Bruno. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton and In the Heights fame. It's got Stephanie Beatrice as Mirabelle. One of my favorite actors, John Leguizamo as Bruno. I remember him most fondly as Luigi in Super Mario Brothers the movie. This is actually... Disney's 60th animated film. That's a huge deal. It's about a family in Colombia and they have a magical house that also gives the magical powers. And our main character is the only person in the family who does not have a power. I think everyone should check it out. If you haven't, there's tons of songs in this movie that you just won't be able to get out of your head. I'm going to give Encanto. You know what? This is the first time I'm doing this. I'm going to mix up the emojis. I'm going to give it four house emojis and one single candle emoji because it's worth it. It's it's a great film. Mauricio, tell me about what movie you chose for today for movies boomers should movie. What I chose was a film that most people, when they saw it, they did not get it, but it is shot beautiful and it's called Tenet from one of my favorite directors, Christopher Nolan. You really want to know? He can communicate with the future. Time travel. No. Inversion. Name it and pull the trigger. You're not shooting the bullet. You're catching it. Oh. Well, I've seen too much. Well, we'll try and keep up. Tenant released, I think it was 2020. Can't remember because the years passed by too fast. But this was a film that we were able to watch because of the pandemic on theaters again. And it's shot beautifully. I'm not trying to like say the full story, but I mean, from what I know, how can I explain it? This protagonist, played by Donzel Washington's son, um, John David Washington, yeah. Yeah, John David Washington. And um, Robert Pattinson also, which stars in this film, is pretty confusing. But I say that this film is one of the best films that an old head should watch because this will probably make them be like, what the hell is this? This is something new. Like, it doesn't make sense, but if they just keep rewatching it, they might love it. Most of this film, it barely uses CGI, only for important elements. Everything was shot for real. Car scenes are real. The explosions are real, like everything. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. This movie also has Ludwig Göransson 
doing the music who I know from producing some of Childish Gambino's music, but he also did the music for The Mandalorian and Black Panther, which is an amazing soundtrack. If you had to rate this film using emojis, what would you give this film? I guess a red and a blue tag, Mm -hmm. because that's what I remember from the film. I guess a 10 out of 10 for me. All right, Mauricio, man, thanks for coming by today. Um, Um... I'm so sorry for uh, being kind of like to interrupt a little bit, like, cause I'm kind of nervous of doing these. Like I never really like talked in the interview before. So I'm kind of uh, like, you know, a little bit nervous. <laughs> Don't worry. You're, you're, you're doing great. I can tell that you're excited and passionate about these films, <laughs> but we're going to wrap it up on that note. Uh, this has been our first episode. Really. I'm your host, King Dice, social commentator, musician, connoisseur of fine cheeseburgers. And this has been movies. Boomers should move. You. Welcome back. In the 90s, we had thousands of call centers filled with people all over the nation trying to sell us stuff. At some point, a conniving businessman figured out that the answering machines that were taking our calls could be used to place outgoing ones. This shift in technology would basically lead to the humans in many of those call centers being replaced by machines. That's how we got robocalls. The weirdest ones I've ever had are always the robots because they feel so real. But there's always something that gives them away. They never like confirming that they're people. I can't I can't work with robots. Um, It was a very aggressive male voice saying your account is delinquent. Before we cut off services, you must, you know, but they don't say what they're from. They just basically make you feel scared like you're in trouble. Today, they've advanced their hustle so the machine gets you on the phone and a human operator hops on and tries to trick you out of your hard-earned money, selling everything from discount carpet cleaners to renewed car warranties. It's shady business. The shiftiest part is you can't hold a machine morally responsible for what it's doing. Call centers create a crime with an untraceable criminal. Or do they? Will Maxson is a real-life superhero taking down sneaky, cheating techno creeps trying to badger cash out of good people. I'm legit grateful for the cavalier work he does. Hey, what city are you in? I, uh, I'm in Washington, D.C. What's your name and what line of work are you in? My name is Will Maxson, and I'm an assistant director in the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection in the Division of Marketing Practices. What does that job entail? In the division that I work in, we handle lots of different scams, deception, you know, companies that target consumers often through the telephone or the internet. And we investigate cases, investigate targets. And then if we develop enough evidence and can proceed in federal court, then we file cases to enforce uh, laws about you know, deception, telemarketing, deception on the internet, things like that. Maybe a company is calling people whose numbers on the do not call list and they're not lying about what they're selling, but they are violating telemarketing laws. Often we'll seek money to try to get uh, restitution for the victim. Then uh, we'll return that money, or at least as much as we're able to recover, to the consumer victims. Wow. How'd you get into the field? So I moved to the FTC in 2010. My hope was to work in law enforcement, we call civil law enforcement, not criminal law enforcement, because my prior experience was in civil law, so you know, normal litigation, not, not criminal law. And so there are only a handful of spots where you can practice civil law enforcement. And the government and, and the FTC is one. Civil litigation was my skill set. It was sort of the perfect fit for me. 
Are your days more along the lines of paperwork or detective work? There's definitely a mix. You know, we have investigators in our division, and I'd say their work is often uh, very much along the lines of being a detective. Our attorneys are, are the same way. You know, a lot of the work that they do uh, and the work that I did when I was a, a litigating line attorney is detective work. But then also, certainly if you're an attorney, there's plenty of paperwork as well. Absolutely. As you describe it, there's something very dramatic about it. Yeah, it, it's a dramatic job. You know, when we go in for those, you know, the immediate access where you go in with law enforcement, usually with local police or sometimes uh, federal law enforcement. Yeah, it's essentially a, a raid and it, it is dramatic. And I've been in on those and um, it's much more dramatic than normal attorney work. <laughs> mm, absolutely makes sense. Are scams usually made by one person or is it a, a team like supervillains in a, in a cartoon? It's much more common to be filing a case against an actual company. You know, you, in most of our cases, there is a corporate form, so there might be executives, and you know, they have employees. Uh, sometimes it might only be five or ten people, but in many cases, you're talking about dozens, maybe even hundreds of employees. May have multiple locations to have the bigger scams that, that reach a large amount of people. You know, it often takes a significant workforce. Uh, but that isn't to say that there certainly aren't scammers out there that operate completely solo. But the ones that that tend to hit the largest number of people, uh, not surprisingly, have uh, have some support. Are certain scams more prominent in certain areas around the country? Like, do rural areas get different scams than big cities? The more common ones that, that we deal with are, are national, and in some cases even international, uh, where they don't really distinguish between where you live. You know, they're looking to just hit the largest number of people possible. If it's an internet scam, you know, it, it can hit anywhere all at once and there's no regionality to it. If it's a telemarketing, it can be regional in the sense that they might target certain area codes at a time. What's one of the biggest cases that you've heard of or, or worked on? A tech support scam, a company in Florida that would have paid advertisements that would lead you to the software that say you could download for free and install it on your computer and it would instantly you know scan your computer for free and, and fix any problems that might be slowing down your computer and so lots and lots of people would go and do this click on it download the software and it would run and it would tell you it did some things but it found some other problems and if you wanted to fix those you needed to pay for the full version of the software it might be like $30 or something like that. And so then a lot of people would pay the $30 for that software. And then it would tell you, okay, well, to activate this software, you actually have to call this phone number. You would buy the software, call the phone number, and then you would be connected to a telemarketer. And they would say, okay, well, let me... I need to remote connect to your machine. And so then they would use a web-based service where they can essentially uh, see your screen and control your screen and get connected into your computer. And then they would run these diagnostics in the background and tell you, oh yeah, you've got all sorts of problems. You've got malware, you know, you've got all these bad things here. You need a lot of significant support on your computer. You could take your computer and go into Best Buy or something like that, and they can probably fix it, but it's going to cost you a few hundred dollars and you're not going to have your machine for days. Or, you know, we offer this service where we can fix it remotely. And they got millions and millions of dollars doing that. This is a place that had, you know, hundreds of employees. 
uh, doing this all the time. And um, I think in that case, we got over $10 million back and we're able to refund, you know, not everyone didn't get a hundred cents on the dollar they they lost, but they got a lot of their money back. Do you ever wear a cape to the office? Um, <laughs> no, but we, I mean, we certainly have a lot of really dedicated, you know, investigators, paralegals, attorneys that do great work and, you know, really dedicated to the mission, you know, many of which cases people took, you know, take pay cuts to come to this job to work for the government because they really believe in the work. It's what makes it a great, a great job. Do you have any tips for listeners on what they can do to protect themselves from scam artists? Specifically, you know, for telemarketing scams, you know, what I always tell people to do is, A, put your number on the do not call list. You can do that by going to do not call.gov. Uh, .gov. That is not going to stop all telemarketing calls to your number. But what we do see is that the vast majority of legitimate companies do abide by the do not call list. Now, that's not going to stop pure scammers because they don't care about the law, but that should reduce the number of calls you get and certainly the number of calls you get from legitimate companies. If you get an illegal call, it's really helpful to us. Certainly, if you go to do not call.gov, the same website, and report it, file a complaint, it's how we find a lot of our targets and that helps us build our cases. Beyond that, there's also a lot of solutions you can get to your phone now. Those sorts of solutions have all popped up really in the last you know, four or five years. Some of them are in many cases available through your, your cell carrier. So if you don't have something like that already on your phone, you can reach out to your cellular provider and see if they have something available for free. If not, then you can also get an app. Insider information. Yeah, it's good stuff. These are great products. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Will. I, no I, problem. I really appreciate you taking the time. No, I appreciate it. Will and Madeline are on the front lines of technological safety. They both use a variety of tools, but one they seem to have in common is compassion. In this high-speed world of SMS texts, YouTube ads, and solicitor emails, empathy is a necessity. Scammers lack it, and in its absence, communication becomes corrupt. Instead of fighting fire with fire, though, both of my guests root their work in compassion. One thing I'm personally taking away from Madeline's interview is that plain old understanding might be our best tool to break through the noise fake news creates. That's kind of deep to me. I might have to sit with that idea a little and let it set in. But I realize that's a pretty heavy note to end on, so let me lighten the mood a little. Let's see what's on the radio. Hey, 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 you're listening to DJ Eddie on the radio, always playing you the best stuff on earth. Here's something slow for you guys. This is Cry Baby by Thea the Band, right here on PCFM. I let you go, I take it back, baby. I didn't know it would hurt like crazy. Now be the Don't make me cry, baby. 
like this Thanks for stopping in. The Parker Edison Project is produced and hosted by yours truly, Parker Edison, and the good people at Platform Collection. Be sure to subscribe and catch the next episode on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or questions, visit theparkeredisonproject.com or hit us on Instagram at the PE Project. My guy, Kurt Conan, is audio production manager. Lisa J. Morissette is Operations Manager, and John Decker is Associate General Manager for Content. This programming is made possible in part by the KPBS Explore Content Fund. I love saying that because it reminds me of Sesame Street. Y'all stay safe out there. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.